see an episode uh, that I haven't seen in 20 years and it blows my mind at how good it is. <laughs> Rarely do I write eight pages of notes that are just the recap and review because rarely is every moment of an entire episode that good that I want to write every moment of said episode. <laughs> the said eight pages that I did. So that was the uh, journey to Babel for me. An episode not only extremely well written, but uh, I think launched itself into the top five greatest episodes of the original series for me. So that's great. And you can see why here as we get through Journey of Babel on today's Brothers Trek About. As always, my name is Matt Gow, coming to you from Austin and coming to us from the East Coast of Texas is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. So uh, you got my quick early review of what I thought of this episode. Uh, how about for you? What do you, what do you want to say before we jump into the specifics of it all? As I have said before, the best Star, the best star Trek takes, you know, like three or four different things, right? Like one is it's got some core Trek theme to it. And then it combines it with something like, let's say, a murder mystery, a police procedural. But wait, there's more, because there's also a medical procedural. <laughs> and then it's full of lore, right? So we learn about the, the Vulcans. We learn about, more about Spock's background. We learn as much about Spock's background as we did in, in, a, in Amok Time. We learn, learn about the Tellarites and the Andorians. They've become foundational to Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And it all starts here. And in the meantime, we've got like to figure out who killed the uh, Dorian ambassador, who tried to kill Spock, who stabbed Kirk. Yeah. And then there's like McCoy is saving everybody's life. <laughs> it's a great episode. It's got all kinds of things. I know. I know. I love it. I love it. So uh, in the funny opposite of last week's episode, which was the uh, 14th episode produced and then the 25th episode shown. This was the 15th episode produced and the 10th episode shown. So it's crazy. This season has been all over the place where it's been putting in episodes. If you've been watching it on Netflix like the rest of us, boy, it's just like you're bouncing all over that, uh, that timeline watching these episodes. Yeah, it felt like last season, and you can see why. I mean, they, they, they make the show, they get the green light, and then they kind of have to make stuff and, and like show it as they're going. There's no, it's harder for them to put things out of order. And so watching it is, it's mostly in order with a couple of skips around. Mm -hmm. But this season, it really is kind of all over the place. Yeah. Well, last season too, they were under the gun a lot more than they were this season, which they had all those right. months to load up and do it. So this episode was written by DC Fontana. As we know, she's always been the expert on Vulcans. What a great script it was. 
her fifth so far, uh, besides all of her rewriting contributions, obviously. Uh, this one springboarded, as Fontana recalls, from uh, a standout episode in the first season, which was The Naked Time. She said uh, how Spock... There was a line in that, in that episode where Spock says that he never told his mother he loved her. And then in This Side of Paradise, she says, I allude to the fact that his mother was a teacher and his father was an ambassador. That was what was sort of running around in the back of my head for a while, and then I thought, it'd be too interesting to get these two characters together and to learn more about them. So she goes to Gene Roddenberry, and Gene Roddenberry says, go, run, jump. <laughs> and so I came back with Journey to Babel, which was uh, done pretty much how it was written, which is interesting. You know, we, we talk a lot about how they bring in other sci-fi writers to come in, and they'll rewrite them, and they'll, you know, show them different, or, you know, and it changes the plot from the beginning, yeah. right? But this one, we get... And it goes to this gene, then to that gene, then DC Fontana, and then it goes to somebody else, and then they send it back to the original guy, and he does this and that, and then it goes back, and there's notes, and there's notes from this guy, and the notes are 13 pages long. Right. Well, not in this episode. In this episode, she does one rewrite on it, and that's pretty much what's shot. She said, uh, it's really a story about communication and why people stop communicating, and then why they begin again. That's what she says. It's basically a love story, but not between a man and a woman, but between a father and a son, and how it had to be resolved without ever admitting it, of course, because Vulcans are not capable of that kind of emotion. And then you throw in the... Well, you, can, you can imagine fathers and sons would have enough difficulty. There's all kinds of movies about that, right? Yes. Well, what's interesting is one of the things that she talks about a lot, which I don't see anywhere in my notes, but one of the things that she talks about a lot is especially at that time, we were having the big generation gap, right? We were having fathers and sons who couldn't communicate because, you know, of what was happening in the 60s compared to where they grew up in, you know, the 40s and the early 50s. So there's that big generational gap that was happening then, much like kind of what's happening now between millennials and those who came before. So it, that's also in this story. Uh, she goes, and then you throw in the adventure, you throw in the intrigue, and you do all that stuff to dress it up. But this is really all in the end a story about love. So uh, Stan Robertson from NBC says, We believe that this particular storyline has the potential of holding a most unique position in the total scope of the series. <laughs> Little does he know. He goes on to say, It can either be developed into one of the most interesting, effective, and audience-appealing shows that we have ever done, or it can be one of those that will do immeasurable harm. I mean, we've seen this, right? Like with the idea of what canon is and what we want characters to go into i mean the last jedi is the perfect example of this right nowadays you've got people who are like that's not my luke skywalker you know so you can imagine even people in the 60s being like that's not the way i saw you know spock and his backstory that's not my spock right that's yeah. not my spock exactly uh he goes on to say uh with the above in mind when we delve visually and dramatically into the side of spock's life which we have only verbally alluded to before, it is obvious that we must be particularly careful that we do not destroy all of the mystery, all of the allure, and the glamour, and the uniqueness which audiences associate with this character. So this might be a good point to like, focus on the idea of glamour. So Virginia Postrel wrote a book on glamour, right? And she reminds us that the word comes from kind of Celtic, mythology about magic and witchcraft 
and vampires had the power of glamour, right? They would trick you into seeing one, a healthy human being, not a corpse. Uh-huh. They would trick you into liking them, tricking you into doing what they said. They could trick you into opening their door. They couldn't enter without your invitation, but they could trick you into giving that invitation so they could come in and feed on you in the privacy of your own right. home rather than... That's why they sparkle, so, right? Is because of their glamour. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, she talks about the elements of glamour, right? And part of it is it appeals to your sense of longing. It includes things like uh, things that are hidden. It's, it's not a good reveal. It has to have a lot that's hidden so that you can project your own desires, your own fantasies onto the parts that are missing. And, you know, so the book comes out and somebody does a review of the book in which they write about their brother. It's a woman uh, writing the review. Writes about her brother and how Star Trek fit into this model for, for him, right? So she read this book and she's like, oh, that's, that's why my brother loved Star Trek. He didn't fit in and here was a world where everybody could fit in. It was a world of merit. You know, if you worked hard and you knew your stuff... You know, you could be on a starship, and this everybody worked together. You know, that teamwork phenomenon wasn't a bunch of backbiting, and, well, you know, you're friends with so-and-so, so you can't be friends with me. And the idea of this idealized world in which, you know, an alien could belong, or someone from any part of the, the globe could belong. You, uh, presumable enemies like Russians could be on the crew as a navigator. Everybody was included. Everybody could work together. And they were doing interesting, challenging stuff, fun stuff, stuff that if you were interested in science or engineering, this was the, you know, that's what I wanted. How many people have said that they got into science or NASA or Stanford or wherever it was because of Star Trek? And this is the glamour of Star Trek. And of course, we do have this glamour of Spock, right? That if we know too much, he just becomes another character. But if we don't know about him, there's always a mystery. And then if you can do that thing where every time you learn something about him, you ask three more questions, you can maintain that glamour. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were just talking recently about, you know, Nimoy going to NASA and all those people saying, yeah, well, this is just like your, con- you know, communications panel and this is like it. So, yeah, yeah that's really uh, mm-hmm. absolutely true. Sorry, I was having problems because I, I muted because I was doing some stuff over here and I didn't want background noise, and then I couldn't get it unmuted. I was like, rah, 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 rah. Oh. so then I got frustrated by that and <laughs> lost part of what you were saying. So sorry. So Robert, uh, uh, ooh, uh huh, what's his name? Robert Justman. Yes. Justman? Okay. So Robert Justman, as always, had some uh, uh, had some snarky things to say about the first draft of the script, and uh, that's why we love him. He says, it is becoming well known that we here at Star Trek, our ability to pay hard cash dollars has no relationship to the increasing popularity of our program. No doubt, by the time we reach our fifth season on air, our show will consist of one long sequence in which Kirk, Spock, and McCoy discuss what has just happened to them on the page in a 62-page briefing scene. (laughs) I thought that was great. Uh, he basically goes on to say, uh, hey, you know, this uh, This is a really great script. I love this idea. But in the first draft of the script, uh, DC Fontana had the show starting on Vulcan. 
To which he was like, uh, this isn't really going to work with everything else that we're going to be paying for with all of the, you know, wardrobe and uh, makeup and everything else we're going to be applying later. Can we just lose that sequence and then not deal with it later? Uh, to, uh, to which Fontana was like, yeah, yeah, no, I want all the money going to the makeup. I want, you know, the coolest, you know, aliens and costumes that we can find. Now, who is the guy who was always irritated that they started on the ship? You know, now, or... that's Dan Robertson from NBC. Right. So, he'd love it. He's like, we're on a, a new planet we've never seen before. Yay! Yeah. Well, it's even funny because later in that memo, Justin even says something like, uh, and the great thing is you'll be able to, you know, you'll be able to tell NBC that, like, if you want to give us more money, we'd like happily put it on another planet. (laughs) Needless to say, NBC didn't come forward with that. Isn't that weird? Apparently Stan didn't have that kind of pull. That's true. Uh, we'll discuss this when we get it. I decided to put it later in once we get into the, uh, the, the recall of the, or the recap of this week's episode. But uh, there is also the change from, uh, they were originally then going to transport everybody from Vulcan onto the thing, but instead they went with the shuttlecraft. Why would they do that? We'll find out later. Little teaser for later. Uh, so Joseph Pebney was handed the script. This is his 13th episode uh, directing for Star Trek. Of course, uh, he goes into with uh, uh, Diagosta here and decides they're going to cast this. How would they cast it? What would be the best way? And so, of course, they bring back Mark Leonard, who we saw in Balance of Terror, right? We talked about his resume in the past on that episode, but let's talk about his Star Trek resume here because there's a couple of interesting things worth pointing out here. Cool. So Sarek uh, would return six more times in the continuity of Star Trek, right? This is obviously before Discovery. Well, we're talking about Mark Leonard, so obviously. So uh, three of the six were on the small screen, right? We get the 1973 animated series Yesteryear, which we have talked about before, uh, with his little uh, Spock's little sellet, right? Which, all, by the way, that episode was also written by DC Fontana, that episode. Then we've got Sarek, right, from the Next Generation episode. And then one more time in Unification, which is the episode in the Next Generation when Spock comes onto the show, right? So on the big screen, he also played Sarek, obviously, in Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, and in Star Trek Six. But, and here's the thing I didn't know before reading this, was that he also played a Klingon in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So, not only has he played a Romulan, not only has he played Sarek, but he has also played a Klingon uh, in the motion picture. So, he's, he's the only, uh, well, he was the first person to play uh, many different races in the Star Trek universe. So, of course, we talked about this before, but Jane Wyatt here is Spock's mother. She was obviously already everybody's favorite TV mom, thanks to the sitcom Fathers No... Ugh. Thanks to the sitcom Fathers No... Why can't I say that? <laughs> Just single father, one father. Yes. We only, we, only the one guy knows best. Everybody well, else... Well, see, here she's with Sarek, so there are two fathers it's, uh, in my brain, you know. <laughs> father knows best, right? Which she played from 1954 to 1960. And, of course, as we remember uh, from that show, her daughter from Fathers Know Best was on the show as well, right? Playing the love interest for uh, Zephram Cochran at the end of that episode of Metamorphosis. Interestingly enough, too, Jane Wyatt won three Emmy Awards for that show. And, of course, she returned as Amanda in Star Trek IV. 
Uh, so this is interesting. There's uh, Reggie Nadler here who plays uh, Shiraz, the elder Andorian ambassador. He was 60 years old at the time, but he had some uh, severe burn scars on the lower half of his face, right? That's not cool. So he was usually cast in a lot of villainous roles. Most notably, he was in Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Man Who Knew Too Much. He played an assassin. He was also a cold Russian operative in the Manchurian Candidate. Manchurian Candidate. And he was prominently featured as the horrific vampire Barlow in the 1979 series Salem's Lot. Now, another funny note here. Fun note. Billy Curtis, he was one of the uh, little people who was the copper-skinned aliens, right? And uh, he was 58 at the time. Among his most famous roles were he was uh, the Munchkin Mayor in The Wizard of Oz and uh, was one of the guys who crawled out from the center of the Earth in Superman and the Mole Men. But, and most interestingly, his longest-running job was as Mayor McCheese <laughs> for McDonald's fast food restaurants. So, that's pretty interesting. I never knew that that was such a short guy playing Mayor McCheese. He always looks so tall compared to everybody. Or maybe in my brain I'm thinking of his, like, his giant thing, Jungle Gym, you know, in all the playgrounds back in the day. So uh, John Wheeler, he was the one who plays the, uh, the Tellerite in this episode. His uh, facial features were buried under a mask with a pig snout, right? He said, it would take them five hours every morning to get me into that shape. Every morning I'm sitting there with Spock and he's getting his ears put on and I'm getting my face put on. The only thing I think that they could do better nowadays would be to tie in the eyes a little bit better so it doesn't look like he's looking out through two holes. Which I was saying, I, I wrote a note earlier, but I'll say it now. I'd love to see a modern version of a Tellarite, right? See what they look like now, see what they would do. But it would be interesting to see what they do with that eye feature, right? Would it be, you know, two eyes poking through black holes? Or would they, you know, center it actually on the eyes? It'd be interesting to see. Did uh, Were there Tellarites in Enterprise? On Enterprise, they were? yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then uh, I'll, I'll look them up there because I'm sure they were... Uh, Sure, they were great looking. And they, they do make the eyes look recessed. Ooh. Good, good, good. I like that idea. So uh, Wheeler also has this to say because he had uh, just gotten to L.A. when he got this job. So he's like, yes, my first job. And then they put him under a mask. So he wasn't too keen about that. But what he has to say is uh, a, a, a bunch of other interesting connections to also this episode. He said, I just done two years on the stage with Robert Preston in uh, What We Take to Town. And Mark Leonard was in that show with me. So I knew Mark and recognized him immediately, even with his haircut and eyebrows. And the director of that was Joseph Pevney. And I had worked with his wife, Mitzi, at the Brussels Fair in 1958, where we did A Wonderful Town. So when I came to set, it was like old home week. But it was really bizarre, the whole thing. And in the middle of it is Jane Wyatt, of course, who I recognized from all her dramatic films and Father's No knows best very elegant classy la lady and surrounded by us all yep very bizarre <laughs> i thought that was a fun little quote of memory there so uh the trimbles who had met joseph pevney many times had this to say about his efficiency when working he was unhurried but when he still got things done when he wanted to get them done we were off to the side and able to watch him work and to see how people reacted to him and when he offered a piece of advice, like how he wanted something done, even Shatner and Nimoy would listen to him. And Nimoy didn't always listen to direction. Each director had their own ideas of how Spock should act, so neither Nimoy nor Shatner took well to direction or criti 
direction or criticism. But Pevney managed to do it so it never seemed like direction or criticism. It was just a friendly suggestion. And they seemed to take it. So I thought that was really cool. So Nimoy has this to say about uh, Jane White and Mark Leonard. They were terrific together. And they asked me if I had any suggestions about the Vulcans and the Vulcans' ideas. And I said, it seems to me that I've come around to think that the Vulcans are, some way, in some ways, hand-oriented people. And it has a lot to do with the hands. So maybe you and Jane could find a way to demonstrate that when you walk together. Instead of holding hands, maybe they would touch fingers, uh, which I thought was a wonderful touch. So that's where that idea came from, was from the, the pure Vulcan himself, uh, Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> and it looks like that's all I got is for behind the scenes. The rest of it we will get to while we're recapping the episode. So if you are ready, sir, all right. let's get to it. Let's do it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So uh, we open this episode with Kirk and Bones getting into their dress uniforms. Bones is complaining. Uh, you know, it feels all awkward to wear it. Kirk tells them that the Vulcans are the last of the delicates to pick up, and after that, we can relax. So they meet Spock in the hallway, and there's a ton of other delegates all lined up in the hallway. These people all wearing costumes from other episodes, of course. I wrote this before I understood. It says, also notice that the Vulcans are being picked up by shuttlecraft and not beaming aboard. So I guess if you wanted to introduce an important character like Sarek, you would like want to go as big you know, with the spectacle as you possibly could. But are you ready for this? There's another reason for it. It was because of the money. To save money, they would arrive in shuttlecraft instead. The shots of the shuttle, like much, like so much else, were reused from previous, el- from previous episodes. To illustrate just how costly the transporter effect was, the building of the hangar deck on stage 10 was less expensive than having a group of people beam aboard. The actual cost of each transporter effect, one person only, either materializing or dematerializing, was about $810, which in 2013 money was about $5,700. Multiply that by the number of characters beaming up or beaming down, and multiply it again by how many times each were described being beamed up or beaming down, and you could see the Star Trek budget was rapidly dematerializing. <laughs> That's interesting, because you'd think that today... With our, you know, computer CGI, what have you, dematerialization be a rather inexpensive thing to do. You're basically paying a computer tech, right. you know, some time to like run his filters or whatever he's doing. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's a snap now. Yeah, absolutely. Back then, not so much. So Gene Rodmary then sends out a memo limiting uh, the effects, right, of dematerializing and materializing. He basically said, if we are going to have them beam down to a planet, let's either show them either beaming down and then back and then on down on the planet, or say, well, let's go dematerialize and then we'll uh, and then have them show up on the planet by materializing. Let's not have both, and maybe in some of those shots, let's only single it on one actor. So that way it would be cheaper than having to do the whole group of people. Uh, So Cushman then goes on to write that this gives insight as to why in the many future episodes, especially those in the third season, uh, that we only see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy who are beamed down. 
fewer optical effects, fewer extras, less money. So the shuttle lands. Back to the episode. Wait, wait. So one of the, the things that we've talked about since the beginning was how season two is the red shirt episode, is the red shirt season. Mm-hmm. It's when all the red shirts die. Because the number of blue and gold shirts that die is roughly equal to red in seasons one and season three. And it makes sense that, you know, if they get cost cutting, especially aggressively cost cutting in season three, one of the things you just do is you eliminate those red shirts who are just going to die. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, I think we've already established the planets are dangerous. We've established that. Let's just leave them out. We don't need to pay an extra. We don't need to have, you know, another guy on there. And we don't have to pay for his, his materialization. Right. Yeah, definitely. And plus, if they... Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens in Season 3 when it comes to actually, you know, the the red shirts and how many how many of them we recognize, you know. Because even if, especially if some of those guys don't get lines, they're not getting paid anything, you know. They're getting paid like 200 bucks or something. Yeah, it's a kind where, like, here's a, you know, Jenkins, and Jenkins is there for, like, ten whole minutes, and he interacts, and is like, go over there. All right, sir. You know, all this stuff goes on, which is kind of, some of these episodes, these Richards talk a lot before they die. Yeah. So, uh, back to the episode, the shuttle lands, the big three enter in their dress uniforms, McCoy, uh... Uh, asks Spock to remind him how the Vulcan salute goes. Spock shows him, but McCoy can't seem to do it. He's like prying his fingers open, trying to make it happen. Uh, He says, this hurts worse than the uniform. The Vulcan delegate then answers, and Kirk introduces himself. Kirk then introduces Spock, whom the ambassador ignores. Hmm. He then salutes McCoy as he is introduced. This guy doesn't like Spock, apparently. We, 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 we learn. Sarek introduces his, uh, uh, introduces she who is my wife. I like it. I'm going to start introducing my wife like that. This is she who is my wife, Jamie. <laughs> he holds out two fingers, which she takes, right? We got the two finger thing here. Which, uh, as we yeah. learned, uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, taught them. But I was also thinking that, remember in Star Trek Three when he's going through Pond Far, that's also one of the things that they use is the rubbing of the fingers together in that uh, very similar way. Kirk offers Spock to be their guide, but Sarek asks for someone else to do it. Kirk then says, hey, Spock, well, if you want to beam down and visit your parents... And then this is where they find we find out that they are his parents. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Credits. Another amazing teaser, right? Completely setting up everything we need to know before the rest of the episode hits. Uh, we piece together that Spock and his parents don't get along. We got family drama happening on Star Trek. Well, let's not waste any longer. Back to it. We come back and Kirk is showing Sarek and Amanda engineering. As Sarah continues deeper into engineering, Amanda Sp- uh, Amanda stops and talks to Spock. You still haven't learned to smile, she says. Spock says, humans smile with so little provocation. She then, like a mom, complains that Spock hasn't come to visit her. He says, the situation between my father and I has not changed. 
Sarek then calls Amanda over, seeing that she is talking to Spock. But then Kirk does... Spock, the subspace rates are so low, you never call. That's true. I mean, he doesn't even have to pay anything to call her. And then Kirk does the same. He calls Spock over. Kirk tries to ask Spock to explain some uh, some of the computer components. And uh, Sarek says, I'm the one who taught him all about computers. We find that Sarek is pissed because he chose Starfleet over the Vulcan Science Academy, which, of course, we is a very important thing when it comes to Discovery. I'm sure we'll get much more of that since we'll be seeing Spock in next season of Discovery. Or by the time this is released, we'll have seen. Spock then excuses himself, and then Kirk apologizes to Sarek, who obviously takes no offense, but then excuses himself anyway. Kirk says uh, he doesn't get it. But Amanda explains that the Vulcan way is very hard and that it has kept Spock and Sarek from speaking to each other for 18 years. Kirk says, well, Spock is my best officer and my best friend. I'm glad, she says. Uh, She then goes on to say that uh, Vulcans believe that peace should not be kept with force. To which Kirk says, well, we only use force as a last resort. Besides, out here, Spock can learn more than he could on the Vulcan Academy. Ooh. I don't know. That's a, that's, a, that's a cheap shot, don't you think? Although, it's hard to... I mean, maybe if you had some other starship captain, that would be the case. But it's like, you know, on my ship, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We have seen more weird stuff in the past couple of months. You wouldn't believe it. That is true. That is true. Um, Let's see. So, uh, in DC Fontana's opinion that uh, not much was altered between how she envisioned this episode and the way it turned out, she says, it was pretty much shot as I wrote it, only a couple of things were changed. And one scene was added in which Amanda talks to Kirk about Sarek's relationship with his son. She says, it seemed to me that that would be inappropriate and that she would not have blurted out all this information to Kirk. I didn't have anything to do with that scene, and I think that Gene Roddenberry rewrote it, she says. <laughs> Which is kind of true, right? I mean, if you think about it from DC Fontana's viewpoint, like, she, Amanda would know enough not to, like, just talk about, as he, you know, and she gets, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She gets in trouble for it later. For yes. Yeah. She gets in trouble for it later by uh, Sarah, who says, you embarrassed my son. I think she does that a lot, though. I mean, I think that's kind of part of her character. Oh, it is very human. And, of course, yeah. yeah. And all we have to go on is, of course, what we've seen on screen. And so if they have her doing things that are inappropriate on screen, then I guess she's inappropriate. But, yeah, she she talks about, you know, when he's young, he's got a teddy bear and, uh, you know, this thing with the father. And I just think there's some other times when she's letting the cat out of the bag. And in one sense... I wonder whether this isn't almost a strategy of Sarah's. Hmm. You know, that he knows that she's going to reveal stuff that he can't talk about. Oh. But this way it gets, it gets out, it, you know, she can, she can grease some wheels even if he's incapable of doing it. Oh, I like that. That's good. The captain then gets a call from Ahura who says she has picked up a random transmission. Kirk tells her to begin long-range scanning. Captain's luck, stardate 3842.4. The conference is to, uh, is, is to basically uh, 
decide whether or not this planet is going to get admitted into the Federation or not. But delegates from both sides are on the ship. Shouldn't they have done this in some other way where they put delegates on one side? Delegates? But anyway, the hope is that they can get to Babel before the delegates uh, lose their minds, basically. We find the big three talking to Sarek. Bones asks about uh, Vulcan physiology and why someone so young in Vulcan years would retire. Him only being 104 years, after all. He had other concerns, says Sarek. The plot thickens. What are those other concerns? Both Kirk and Sarek turn to get some food off of the table, and then Ambassador Goth asks Sarek what his vote will be. Sarek says, all will be known at the council chamber. And an Andorian st steps in, wanting to know what Goth's hurry is to know. And Goth says, uh, that Sarek's sway carries so many votes. To which Sarek replies, Tellarites only argue to argue, he says. I was wondering, how diplomatic is that for an ambassador, right? We got some sassy Vulcans going on there. <laughs> Kirk diffuses the situation, telling everyone that they'll have to wait until they get to uh, Babel. Nothing can be solved here. Kirk then gets high praise from Sarek by saying, quite logical. Sarek and the Andorian agree with Kirk, but Goth the Tellarite just excuses himself. So again, we got the story, it's beginning to grow, right? We got this political intrigue now that's happening. The groups all don't get along. There's a lot of misgivings in allowing this planet to be admitted. Plus, we got the family drama on top of this. Boy, we're really building into something here. It is. It's a dense episode, and there's a lot, a lot of good extra material. Well, like you said earlier, too, it just starts building the lore of, you know, the Vulcans and the Tellarides and all of these people. Bones is trying to get dirt on, on Spock from Amanda, and uh, he asks her if uh, he ran around and played like Earth children. Amanda sort of demures, but instead tells Bones about the pet sellet. And weirdly, we have discussed this before, right? Uh, City on the Edge of Forever, I think. Oh, yeah, because they go back in yeah. the animated. Uh, I remember now. Yep. <laughs> but he did have a teddy bear. And then she leaves. Bone starts laughing. <laughs> a teddy bear, that's great. And then Spock describes a Vulcan teddy bear is alive and has six-inch fangs. <laughs> Chekhov calls down, and uh, we hear that there's a spacecraft that is pacing them. Hmm. And there are no authorized vessels in the area. We go to the bridge. Kirk tells Chuck, uh, Chekhov to intercept the vessel. In Sarek's quarters, he and Amanda are talking. This is the uh, you embarrass Spock tonight, he says. It's not right for a Vulcan. But he's half human, she says. But he is an officer in Starfleet. She says, I thought you didn't approve. Sarek hesitates and then says, it is more about respect than approval, he says. Amanda says, uh, she loves Sarek, even though it's not logical. You know, in one sense, of course, if he was, if I, I would agree, if you're just if you're telling Chekhov or Sulu or Ensign Jones or you know a bunch of cadets that Spock had a teddy bear, 
that does undermine his respect, his commandability on the ship, right? Right. But telling stuff to Kirk and McCoy, a command, another commander, because mm-hmm. McCoy's a commander, and the captain, in a sense, humanizes Spock, creates empathy and sympathy, and is is more likely to. I mean, you read stories about you know the, the band of brothers and the, the tight group of officers, or Alexander's companions, the elite people who you know. They, they need each other, right? Captain, how many times have we been told it's a lonely job? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Spock and McCoy provide that friendship, that camaraderie. And, of course, it works the same for the second command, right? It's a lonely job. Yeah. So they have the captain and, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to make of the doctor. Are they enemies? Well, not even they know, mm-hmm. right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So having these stories about his childhood humanizes him. Right, comrades in arms. And not to mention, we already know that they're, like, best friends. So. Uh, on the bridge, the ship is now uh, heading toward the other vessel. Kirk readies the phasers. But we see that the ship is now traveling at warp 10. What's happening, Kirk? What's happening here? And he blows past the ship. Kirk says, hmm. Faster and more maneuverable, yet able to keep its distance. Kirk decides to head back to Babel. And now the intruder is paralleling the Enterprise. Hmm. Back down in what I can only assume is the original series version of 10 Forward. Uh, Sarek arrives and heads over to the wine. And we see him take a pill as a Telluride watches. I thought this was room. Like, why did he go all the way back down to, you know, the 10 Forward? Why didn't he just get water from his... You know, from his refresher room or uh, something else. No, I guess it had to be taken with wine, maybe. I don't know. One of the few things I saw in this episode that I was like, but I know we needed to have this scene. Because the Tellarite then crosses to him and says, Vulcan, I will speak to you now. To which Sarek's reply is, it does seem unavoidable. (laughs) Starkey Vulcan again. Now we know where Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory gets it from. Telluride asks again, uh, how will he vote? But Sarek says, uh, and Sarek answers by saying they favor admission. The Telluride says, what? Sarek continues explaining that the planet has almost an unlimited dilithium crystal supply. Okay. But uh, too few people. And uh, to keep all the mining legal and is easier under the Federation. The Telluride then says, you accuse us of stealing? And again, all Sarek gives him is facts. Many of your ships have had the dilithium from that planet on them. So the Telluride attacks, but luckily it's just as Kirk walks in. He stops everything in a heartbeat. The Telluride throws on more threats to Sarek, which Sarek casually rebuffs. The Telluride exits. So later, on the ship now, a security guy is just walking through an empty corridor, and suddenly he sees a Telluride hanging dead in a Jeffrey's tube. Kirk is shirtless in his quarters when the call comes in and we go to commercial. Commercial. So now we have family drama, intergalactic you know, questions of peace, diplomatic episode. Now it's a murder mystery. One thing after another after another. Not only that, we got shirtless Kirk here, right? Trying to keep our leading man sexy. <laughs> Back to it. Bones is looking over his shoulder. Oops, sorry. 
Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. Back to it. Bones <laughs> is looking over the body of the Telluride. Kirk asks uh, if he could tell how he died. His neck is broke, broken, Captain, by an expert. It must have been the Vulcans. Spock explains that it was once a merciful way to put somebody out of their misery by breaking their neck in such a way. That uh, also more hints at a, a weird Vulcan past, right? A lot more like the Romulans. <laughs> exactly. Kirk tells Spock about the argument with Sarek. Bones thinks that this must make Sarek the number one suspect. But Spock believes different. Since Vulcans, as we have already heard, don't believe in violence. They don't kill without reason. But, says Kirk, if he had a reason. Spock then says, well, then my father is quite capable of killing. Oh, boy. Down in Sarek's quarters, Sarek is brought up to speed. Sarek says he was in deep meditation. But then suddenly crumples to the floor. But Bones doesn't know Vulcan physiology very well. And he says, but it does seem to be cardiovascular in nature. Back on the bridge, Kirk is worried about his friend Spock. Aren't you worried? Says Kirk. Worried is a human emotion, says Spock. But I accept what's happened. Spock then tries to change the subject by talking about the ship in pursuit. The ship is unlike anything that we have seen before. Uhura then detects a transmission, and it's coming from the ship! Oh no! The reception point is on the Enterprise! The call is coming from inside the house! (laughs) Spock can't decode the transmission. It is unlike anything they have seen before. Again, much like the ship. Kirk tells Uhura to turn the sensor locator into the ship. We have to catch that mouse. In sickbay, Kirk arrives to find out about Sarek's condition. It was a Vulcan heart attack. Bones asks Amanda, have there been any other attacks like this? Amanda says no, but Sarek says yes. His doctor prescribed something for it. And that's what was happening when the Tellarite died. I was quite incapacitated. Bones notes that he can't do regular open heart surgery because of the construction of the Vulcan heart. So Spock suggests serogenic open heart procedure, which Sarek agrees to. Bones thinks he can do it, but it would require a massive amount of blood. Chapel tells us there isn't enough Vulcan blood aboard for this type of operation, which makes me ask the question, how much blood would it take? But it gets worse, because Spock reveals that he too has the rare blood type T-, and he will allow a transfusion. But then Bones says, you uh, can't give that much blood, it would kill you. To which I ask the question again, how much blood is this going to take? <laughs> so confusing. It is, because, on the, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, there's a lot of blood involved, right? Right. But... Where's it going to end up? It's not like we're going to spill it on the floor. Right. And, you know, know, at least before and after the exact procedure, like, Sarek's still going to be producing some blood. Yeah. So it's like, you know, granted, if if you are doing stuff with the heart and we're going to lose blood, you know, what you do is you have something that collects it, right? Right. And this is the 23rd century. It's not like... We're doomed, you know, we've got nothing. 
You would think at this point they might even be able to synthesize blood or something. Yeah, so that's the obvious answer, right? Mm -hmm. And if we need for the story for that not to work, then, you know, okay, whatever. But it, yeah, it does seem like, wow, that's an awful lot of blood. Uh, Chapel also tells us that Spock's human blood, that Spock's blood has human particles in it. But Spock somehow thinks that we can just filter those out. That's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Bones tells Amanda to uh, produce the amount of blood needed is uh, extremely thin in the, uh, as, as to whether or not they will survive. Spock says, I calculate the percentage to be, please don't, she says, as if she's been hearing that her whole life, right? I cal calculate the per uh, percentages to be on that. Well, you know, she could have thrown her, her finger into Spock's face and said, never tell me the odds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so a little later limited, Bones is trying to learn as much as he can before the surgery. Spock wants to try a jug that they, uh, a drug that they've only used on Regillians. <laughs> Bones is afraid to do it. <laughs> what? A jug to store all the blood in, duh. Well, I'm imagining, like, we find a jug in the hallway. And, like, let's just take some swings. Dr. McCoy, I have put my blood in this jug. Bones is afraid to do it. He's afraid of losing Spock as well. Uh, he says, I know the anatomy of the heart of the Vulcan heart, but it's very different from the practical expertise, which I think is a great point, right? Because doing heart surgery is one thing, but you know, knowing how to do heart surgery is one thing, but then like actually having to open up and actually do it, that's a whole other story. Bones goes on to say, if I don't kill him, then the drug might. What drug? Asks Amanda, who just walked in. <laughs> a drug to help speed up and replace blood in the body the drug in the jug <laughs> the drug in the jug exactly <laughs> oh my god I've lost him folks I've lost him <laughs> he says it, uh, it puts a tremendous amount of stress on the other organs it might kill Sarek. So uh, Spock says, well, then let's uh, try that jug on... Jug, I said it again. <laughs> Spock says, well, then let's try that drug on me. Sorry. So there's a nice shot here of uh, of Spock looking at Amanda, who's like in total stress, and you could almost tell. And it's part of the way that the shot is positioned, but also kind of just what's happening, you know, in the scene between the two actors. It looks like he wants to hug her, but you know, but also his Vulcan ways won't let her. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. 
So as I said, Spock then reveals that he wants to use the drug on himself, not on Sarek. Both Bones and Amanda won't let him do it. Then you condemn Sarek to his death. Oh, wow. All right, Spock. Jeez. It's also funny, too, because in the scene, and this is just a technical thing, but it's also funny in the scene because you can see the makeup wrinkles that they put under Jane, uh, Jane's eyes here, you know? It's interesting. It's like they purposely added more makeup to look her, make her look older, but they're really standing out in this uh, scene. So then, out of this scene, we cut right into the middle of a fight with Kirk and an Andorian, right? It's another, what's happening here? We just had this uh, a few episodes ago in Friday's Child, where they just cut into the tent and suddenly this fight has broken out for no reason. We get the same thing here. How did we get here? We don't even know. We do find out later that he was attacked by this Andorian coming out of his, uh, you know, coming out of his room. But in the middle of the fight, the Andorian pulls out a knife and slashes at Kirk twice. Uh, but Kirk throws him away, and then he does the flying kick. The trademarked Kirk flying kick. He does it right here. The Andorian then stabs Kirk in the side, but Kirk still manages to subdue him. Also notice there's no blood. <laughs> this must have been another standards and practices thing. Uh, but he stands weakly and he calls Spock and asks for a security team before passing out. <laughs> Commercial. Back at it. Spock is now in command of the sh- of the vest of the of the ship. We find out that Kirk's left lung has been punctured. A few more centimeters, it might have been his heart. Kirk is about to leave to question the scheming Andorian when we find out that Sarek's condition has worsened. McCoy says there is no choice; we have to operate. But Spock says that he can't now. His first duty is to the ship. Bone says, "You can hand the ship over to Scotty." But then I realized we haven't seen Scotty all ambassador long, so all episode long, so we're probably not going to see him. I know. I don't know what's happening. Wait, how long is an ambassador? So long. All right. But then I realized we haven't seen Scotty all episode long, so we probably won't see him later. In the brig, then, Spock talks to the Andorian ambassador. The ambassador says he knows little of this other Andorian. Spock says that he was interrogated, and yet it revealed nothing, which suggests that he was trained for this plot. The ambassador says, how would we profit from taking out your captain? That's a good point, and even Spock thinks that's a good point. But you kind of get the feeling in this episode that you're not supposed to try... Uh, this episode... Uh. But you get the uh, feeling in this scene that we're not supposed to trust this ambassador, right? Seems a little cagey. So we, you know, Spock makes this argument that I can't relinquish command because, you know, we've got this this mysterious ship trailing us. Someone's already attacked the captain. We there's a uh, Andorian murdered. You know, there's right. too many things to do for me to like relinquish command. For like personal reasons, but there's one other, there's one additional reason that goes unstated, and that's like, okay, sure, you know, Mister, because McCoy says Scott's perfectly capable, yes, and that's true. Scott can handle the ship, and you know, the problem is 
you've now got two, like, who comes after Scott? Because if two of your three top officers are incapacitated, and something were to happen to Scott, and there's a hostile ship outside, and a murderer on the ship, mm -hmm. Scott is vulnerable. Who comes next? Is Sulu in command? Because, you know, there's really no, unless there's a records officer on board. <laughs> That's what somewhere. I was going to say. <laughs> records officer on Deck 9. He's a commander. <laughs> there's really, you know, nobody else who you'd say really could be in True. charge. So, it, it, it's dangerous for Spock to relinquish command to Scott if Scott, if something would happen to Scott, we're now, we're now in trouble. Very good point, sir. So now we're in Spock's quarters, and uh, we can see he's working on something, and he sort of, like, hesitates as he's, like, thinking about something in his brain, which is great because that plays into a moment later. But uh, you can see it really is weighing on his mind here in that little, like, two seconds. So uh, someone chimes in. It's, uh, my guess is that it's Amanda to plead Spock to do the surgery. And sure enough, it is. And it's funny how suddenly the minds of her and Bones have changed, right? Like before they were like, no, I don't want to risk losing both of you. And now suddenly we jumped a few hours ahead and it's like, oh, okay, you know, we got to do this. This perhaps shows the value of logic over emotion, right? It was an emotional thing keeping them from doing it before. But now logic sets in. Like, there's no other choice. This is our only choice. We have to do it now. And now at this point, they're like, he's like, I can't. I can't do it. And there are any normal circumstances I could get Mr. Scott to do it. But the circumstances are not normal. He lays out the facts, you know, the diplomat, the ship following them, the attempted murder on Cook. The situation is not normal. She says, your duty is to your father. Sarek understands my reason. Well, I don't, she says. You're human. Oh, that's not a dirty word. You are human, too. Let that part of you come through. Your father is dying, she says. Spock says, I must remain logical, no matter how important the gain might be. Amanda then tells us the story of Spock as a kid. The other kids tormenting him for and saying that he wasn't really Vulcan. So this story that she's about to tell, we've seen several times now, mm -hmm. you know, played out. We, we see it in Discovery. Yep. Right? There's some memory of it. We see it in... J.J. Uh, um, Trek. J.J. Reboot. And we, uh, uh, if I recall, I think we see something of it in uh, the animated. I think so, too, yeah. Series as well. So this is a famous story she's telling. <laughs> All because of this episode. Mm -hmm. And Amanda cried knowing that Spock inside was crying. So now I know that part of, part of me must be in you. So this is the crux of the Spock's character, right? I mean, all of that. Amanda is upset because she wants Spock to be more human, right? She wants to see that there's a part of, him, part of uh, her in him. And Spock doesn't want... I think Spock doesn't know how to do that without letting his father down. Right, exactly. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, how, like, in a physical ache, right, in a pain that you have, sometimes you just learn to live with it for the next three or four days, right? It just moves on. So imagine that ache, you know, being inside of you, 
for years and years and years. You just sort of learn to deal with it, right? You just turn your back on that ache of your humanity inside of you, and you just put up the veneer of the Vulcan, right? And soon that just becomes a part of who you are. So that ache is no longer inside you, you know, dealing with everything else that's happening, you know? But we do know that Spock loves his mother. He said so in a previous, you know, episode in the, the Naked Now. So her saying that there must be some part of me in you that I can reach. That's got to be killing him inside, right? Right, yeah. But then she goes on to say, if being Vulcan is more important to you than continuing speaking rules and regulation, then let your father die. And Spock just winces at that moment, right? It's so awful. And such good drama. It's so good. It's good, good acting. Yeah. I was gonna, I was, my next note is let's remember how good, you know, Letter Nimoy is as Spock. And this proves it. This just shows it, how awesome he is. Mother says, uh, go to him. Spock says, I cannot. And then mom just slaps him, boom, and then runs out. And then, in the moment of all moments, in probably one of the best moments in the scene, you see Spock walk up and put his hand on the door, like longingly, right? Like, jeez, mm-hmm. oh, I wish I could fix this. You get a slow tear down your face. That's what's happening there watching that scene. Down in sickbay, Kirk wakes up. Uh, he tries to move for a second, but can't. Bone says, that'll teach you. But then uh, he finds out about Spock, so he decides he must get moving. I'll convince Spock that I'm okay and order Spock to sickbay. Then I'll put Scott in command and return to my quarters. Does that work for you? Bone says it does. So on the bridge, Kirk slowly makes his way to the chair. He does this great job of convincing Spock to leave. And just as the turbo lifts doors shut, Kirk collapses into the chair. Uh, He calls for Scott. But then the alien vessel moves closer. Belay that order. Uhura hears the transmission again, and it's coming from the brig. So he calls security down to check on the prisoner. Meanwhile, in sickbay, the transfusion begins. But as Spock lays there, he realizes something about the ship. But instead of allowing this important detail to get to the captain, instead of writing it down and sending up, or even, you know, just calling from sickbay to the bridge, Chapel just knocks him out. It's another little plot moment. I'm like, we got to keep the secret to the end. Not just that, but I think all the medical team are so used to Spock being like, oh, wait, can't, can't do my physical, got to go repair the, you know, transducers on deck three. Up, oh, up, oh, can't do my, you know, scheduled whatever it is because I got to go solve these equations. They're probably so used to him coming up with excuses for not doing the thing they need him to do that they're just like, screw it, eh. See, that's one line. All you need to do, add one line. (laughs) Uh, Enough of your delays and excuses, taser. Did you just tase a patient? We just tased the Vulcans. (laughs) Too strong for us. (laughs) Cut to the brig. Uh, They are searching for the transmission device on the Andorian, but then the Andorian knocks out the other guards. But luckily, the other guard fires the phaser. And the Andorian slumps to the ground. Only to find that he is not an Andorian. One of his antenna has fallen off. And that's where the transceiver was hidden. 
The ship turns direction and starts he- the alien ship. Sorry, the alien ship turns direction and starts heading towards the Enterprise. Kirk tells them to bring the prisoner to the bridge. Shields up. Phasers stand by, and the alien ship rans the Enterprise. Oh my gosh! Fire as he strafes, but Chekhov says it's a clean miss, sir. A clean miss? Question mark. I understand a clean hit. That makes sense, but a clean miss. It's an air shot. Yeah, it sort of missed them. It sort of missed them. It's it's not, not we got we didn't hit the backboard. We didn't hit the rim. We got right. nowhere near that basket. <laughs> we like hit the stands over there. Bounced in the stands. Third row. Third row. Um. The alien ship rams them again. And this time causes more repercussions down in the uh, sickbay. Bone says, another ram like that and I'll lose both these men. Commercial. Back at it, but they can't stop the ship. Kirk tries a spread of torpedo. Kirk tries a spread of torpedoes, but nothing works. The alien ship rams the ship again. And now, Sarek's heart has stopped beating. Bones tells Chapel to call engineering and tell them to put sick, sick bail uh, on priority. On the bridge, the shields are buckling, and the fake Andorian refuses to do anything about it. Kirk then cuts the power to the starboard and the port side. The bridge is dark. Kirk is falling apart. He's sweating. He's hunched over. Chekhov takes back the weapon stations. The Andorian seems confused. What is going on here, Captain? Speculate for yourself, says Kirk. We see the ship looks dark and listless in space. We find out that Kirk has been baiting the ship, waiting for another run so he can score some damage. And it works. The ship comes at them, and Kirk fires, and it's a direct hit upon the ship, which then breaks up. Kirk tells Uhura that they can uh, surrender if they wish, but before he can finish the sentence, the craft explodes. The fake Andorian says they will not be taken. They had orders to self-destruct. I, too, have those same orders, he says, and collapses. Oh, my gosh. Kirk then heads down to sickbay to check on Sarek and Spock. He asks Bones about them, but Bones says, uh, what the hell is going on with all that shaking of the ship? Kirk tries again, and Bones says, well, you don't make it easy up there with everything that's going on. Then Kirk grabs Bones, but then in walks Amanda, saying, Kirk, please come in. Spock lets us know that the uh, ship was full of Orion pirates. Ah, says Kirk, setting up mutual suspicion while they, ca- while they stay neutral and raid Corridan and sell the dilithium to both sides. Spock wonders why he didn't think of it before. Hmm. Kirk says, maybe your mind was on something else. And we saw it earlier in that other scene, like I was saying. Spock says, looking at Sarek, that seems unlikely. Amanda then asks Sarek to thank Spock. Thanks, Spock, says Sarek. He did the only logical thing. Why would I, why would I want to thank logic? <laughs> Logic! I'm sick to death of logic, screams Amanda. Hmm. Emotional, says Spock. Isn't she? Why did you marry her? Sarek says, 
At the time, it seemed like the logical thing to do. <laughs> Kirk then starts to crumble, and uh, they take him to the open bed. Bones tells him, now stay in bed and behave. Kirk says, I think that you're enjoying this. Spock says, I've never seen him look so happy. <laughs> and then Bones shushes everybody before they can talk again. And they all stay quiet. And he says, oh, how do you like that? I got the last word. <laughs> and the show ends. Woo! What an episode. So one of the questions that I wonder is that uh, D.C. Fontana in all these interviews keeps saying that she was thinking about what kind of woman would marry a Vulcan. Did we get the answer to that question, I ask? Did we learn a lot about Amanda? Did we learn enough that it would, you know, show us why, you know, she would marry Sarek? I think we have to fill that in for ourselves. I think that's another example of us having to fill it in for ourselves, too. I mean, I like her characterization in it. She is mm -hmm. obviously very human. But, again, she's had to put up with all of this logic stuff for 20 years. You know, you'd think that, like, she would either at this point succumb to it and she wouldn't lose her mind like she did, you know, at the end of the episode. Logic, I'm so sick of logic. You know, it would be, be a good, a good, you know, conversation to have in Discovery. Is, oh, yeah. You know, because Burnham is working through this problem of how to be a Vulcan but be human and... I kind of feel like Burnham is putting Vulcan on the shelf. Yes, I would say so. And so, like, a reasonable thing to do would be to ask Amanda, okay, you have the same problem, how to be a human in a Vulcan world, and, and make a go of it. What do you do? Like, why? Why did you marry Sarek? And then for, Sarek, for Amanda to explain things, you know, like... Uh, um, you know, like part of it's going to be opposites attract, right? Mm -hmm. But part of it's also got to be, Amanda's got to be the kind of person who would be attracted to the new, to the exotic, to the alien, rather than the familiar, right? You know, the kind of person who has to get out of the small town, right? Yeah. And so the idea of traveling the galaxy with this ambassador who had this kind of cold reserve that you know, but was so interesting and intellectually stimulating while being emotionally so remote. That was what was appealing to her, right? And, you know, in, in some ways, her dynamic and expressive, you know, was, was appealing to him, although he was also had to keep it at arm's length. And, you know, to explain that relationship, and you're like, oh, and then Burnham could, you know, go, uh, yeah, and, and feel like now she can maybe take a little bit of Vulcan back off the shelf and integrate it into a complete personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think, too, you know, we also got, I mean, we got some of it in Discovery. If you think about it, there's the scene with, you know, Burnham and, and Amanda. You know, there's that scene mm -hmm. of where she, where, yeah. And I agree with you. I think Burnham is trying to is trying to get rid of the Vulcan and stick with the stick with the human. It's certainly working for a better on Discovery, no, nonetheless. But I'm sure we'll get into a lot more of this in this season of Discovery with Pike and Spock and everybody else. 
So there were only two opticals done for this episode. Uh, that was the alien ship, right, which we see keep coming at the, uh, the Enterprise. And then it was also, if you remember in the episode, Uhura was calling Kirk in engineering, and he picks up the screen to look at her. All the other opticals were recycled from past episodes. And if we weren't watching the remastered episode, if we were watching the original episodes, you would see that that also causes a problem because in one scene they're firing blue phasers, and in another scene they're firing purple phasers. So that's why, because they were taken from other episodes. So as far as ratings go, in the cities, Star Trek was number two in the ratings behind Gomer Pyle, as we've discussed. But when you add in the rural areas in the country, Star Trek slips down to third with Hondo taking the second place. So that's interesting. A survey was also done during this month of, uh, by one of the ratings, ratings groups. And for the age group of 12 to 17, Star Trek was the, fourth mo- was the fourth most watched series on television. So that's cool to know. Yes, it turns out that if NBC had known that the demographic they were reaching was young males, they would have kept it on the air. Exactly. Well, not only that, but they would have kept it in on a night that wasn't Friday. Because mm-hmm. they just, they thought that was an unreachable demographic. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of knew how to reach older men. They knew how to reach older women. They kind of felt like they had a couple of ways to reach younger women. But, ah, oh, young men, ah, we got nothing. Jane Wyatt said of filming this episode, Oh, it was great fun. Shatner was really entertaining. I had great fun <laughs> with him on the set. My son, he was more dour, she said, at that time. He didn't really talk much. Mark Leonard was very good, and so good-looking when he got on his Star Trek clothes, and then his ears were so good. And I think my son is better-looking with his ears, too. I think all the men ought to... I think all men ought to... I think all (laughs) men ought to wear pointed ears, she says. They're very becoming, aren't they? (laughs) That's got to be part of the appeal for Amanda, right? Right. Oh! I just remembered another thing, too, which I will edit in and put this earlier when you were discussing um, the Amanda situation. Was also, you know, we, they got so many letters from women, right, saying how sexy yeah. Spock was. And because of his, you know, emotional remoteness, that it's, it's clear to see that you could almost see how Amanda could fall for a very Sarek type. Well, we got Nurse Chapel. Yep. And in fact, with that... While Spock was often deluged with fan mail on a regular basis, this trend was outdone following the broadcast of Journey to Babel. Indeed, the fan mail poured into the studio at an incredible rate, only this time they were addressed to Mark Leonard, who for two weeks topped those coming in for Leonard Nimoy. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, this goes down in the record books. uh, I mean, you know, I've already put it in my top five, but obviously many other people have put it there as well. The unauthorized reference book Beyond the Final Frontier uh, put it in its top five, saying that this is an episode with uh, rich, is rich with color and texture. The relationship between Spock and Sarek is extremely well done, with Amanda's concern and disappointment adding an absent emotional context that makes the father-son relationship seem all the more tragic. Uh, a Starwick fanzine in the uh, mid-70s chose this as the third most uh, liked episode, according to that poll, right under The City on the Edge of Forever and Amok Time. 
and was followed then by, in fourth and fifth place, The Menagerie and The Trouble with Tribbles. Science fiction magazine Cinefantastique selected this as one of the series' best ten, and Entertainment Weekly, too, also placed uh, Journey to Babel at number ten, it says, which is interesting. I also read a thing that said that uh, during Star Trek Online, there was an expansion called Agents of Yesterday where uh, the Return of Babel uh, situation is happening and you're taking care of other events at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Or did you not play it? It's not ringing a bell. It says that the player character is sent to the event to prevent the Nakul from oh, disrupting it. Cool, yeah. Gav's death yeah. and Kirk's Kirk's stabbing were perpetuated by the Nagul, and the mystery ship was a con- was a collaboration between the Orions and the Nagul. Its destruction, its destruction was not a self destruct, but the player character planting a bomb that was meant for the Enterprise in the ship itself. <laughs> that's funny. All right, well, that's all I got about this week. Anything else you uh, you got? I think when JJ Trek kill off Amanda. Played by Winona Ryder. Yes. It was a mistake. Uh, that was an important character, a character with a lot of depth. And you, you do get this moment of anguish when she dies. But you lose all the richness that Amanda brings to uh, to the relationship with Spock and Sarek. Now, they may have thought, well, we're not ever going to bring Sarek back. And who needs that? And It's already been done. We don't need to do it again. Right. We get the benefit of it having been done on the other timeline, and we just get to presume that it's there. Well, and not only that, too, but I think he's a lot more human on that timeline, too, than mm-hmm. in the original series, you know? We see with his relationship with Uhura and all of that that they're doing in the J.J. Trek. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, next week's episode is A Pretty Little War. No idea. We'll see it, though. I'm going to see it again for the first time, I'm sure. But I can't wait for that. That uh, about wraps up this week's episode. As always, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin and saying goodbye in Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you go, and we will see you all. Oh, wait. And before we go, don't forget you can find us all on the uh, Stitcher Radio. You can find us there, podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. That's a cool place. You can find us on SoundCloud. We're there, and we're always showing little excerpts of uh, what we do here behind the scenes on our YouTube site. So uh, you should go over there and look there. All that fun stuff is there. And with that being said, goodbye. nice yeah it was good lots of stuff to talk about private little war is next again i have no idea what that is we get some kirk backstory this time oh all right on the heels of the spock backstory that's right <laughs>